Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am very happy to bring another pediatric trainee to the podcast. Nina Quay always wanted to be a physician, and after a long circuitous route, including six years of working in the medical field between undergrad and medical school, found herself in her happy place of pediatrics. She received her medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia and then made her way out of the South, where she had spent her entire life, to the Midwest. She completed her pediatric residency at the Grand Rapids Helen Navas Children's Hospital in Michigan and is moving on to the Midwest, Cleveland, Ohio, for a developmental behavioral pediatric fellowship. And then, as if that was not enough, she wants to do a sleep medicine fellowship. During residency, she discovered her passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion topics in clinical medicine. Along with a classmate, she co-founded the Pediatric Program's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. In her first year, they created a workshop simulating interactions with medical language interpreters covering unique local populations. This year, she completed a quality improvement project regarding microaggressions, and that's what she's going to be talking about today. Her hope is to improve the clinical medicine workspace for everyone, not just physicians, and to provide tools that enable everyone to initiate these often difficult and uncomfortable conversations safely. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Nina Quay. Hi, Nina. How are you? I'm good. How about you, Leah? Doing great. I am glad that it is springtime. We are recording here in April. It's April 1st, as a matter of fact. So I'm happy to see the sunshine and some flowers coming up. So I just wanted to kind of start out with talking a little bit about you, kind of why you chose pediatrics. Um, You are a third-year resident and your plans to go into developmental behavioral health as a subspecialty. Maybe you can share with us kind of your journey. Yeah, sure. So uh, growing up, always wanted to be a physician. I always loved going to the doctor. I was fascinated with what they did and just loved the field of medicine itself. Did a traditional pre-med biology degree at Columbus State University in Georgia. Um, and I'm, I'm a Southern girl. I was born in Arkansas, raised in North Carolina, and then moved to Georgia as a teenager and went to college and medical school there. Um, medical school was Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. And just really fell in love with pediatrics. I I didn't plan to go into peds. I thought I was always going to work with adults. Um, I did take about six years in between my bachelor's and medical school, um, taking care of my parents, essentially, but worked a lot in medicine, in anesthesia, in the OR, as well as um, in like a clinical lab uh, as a phlebotomist. So I had a lot of exposure to medicine and still, despite all that time, still decided I really want to go and become a doctor anyway, even though I understand what the healthcare field has morphed into in my day. And, uh, 
entered peds because I was just really happy coming to see kids every single day. And even though you deal with like really tough cases, you deal with really at times can be difficult parents or really trying to talk and communicate and overcoming barriers to care is hard. I just felt so fulfilled. So I went to Pete's, ended up coming to Grand Rapids kind of on a fluke at the time I wanted to be a pediatric hospitalist um, and interviewed here, loved it, thought it was beautiful. I was ready to get out of the South. I think my family was ready to experience something different too. Um, so packed up my husband and my parents and moved to Grand Rapids. And uh, now I'm finishing up in my third year. I found pediatric developmental behavioral as a subspecialty in my second year because it's a required rotation. And up until then, I did not realize that existed. And at that time, I wanted to do pulmonary and sleep medicine. I always loved sleep medicine and kind of just felt like the pulmonary part went with it. But then I realized I was seeing so many patients that were complex. I was seeing patients that have a lot of developmental delays. You need a lot of interdisciplinary care for them. And that's what I really loved. Um, I loved having the time to spend to them to really poke and prod and explore all of the parts of their life. And I just really like providing that medical home for them. And so after a lot of kind of soul searching, um, I decided to go with developmental behavioral peds and um, will hopefully tag on a sleep medicine fellowship afterwards. You're one of those people that loves to be in education for a long time. And I think actually our connect is through sleep and pulmonary because one of my podcast guests was Dr. Hovig Artinian, who I can definitely see why you would pick that field if he was a mentor. And so we kind of cross paths through that. So that's kind of a fun connect. And we also, I realize, have some other connections because I too was a phlebotomist and we both love kids' mental health work and we're both Asian-American. And I am a first generation on my dad's side. And uh, so I think that sort of maybe winds its way into talking a little bit about what you're interested in, and that's microaggressions. And I think right now with what's going on in nationally, um, there's been a lot of um, hate crimes towards Asian Americans and, of course, all of the racial unrest around George Floyd. So I think this is a perfect topic. So why don't you talk a little bit about what microaggressions are and what your experience has been like? Absolutely. So microaggressions is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I really felt like I experienced these things like many other people of marginalized groups their entire lives, but never had a term to use for it. And everyone suffers from it, yet we we now have a term that is now in vogue, per se. So the term's actually been around since the 1970s from Dr. Chester Pierce, um, who coined it. Uh, but I think um, now with our societal issues that have come up and all this type of unrest that we've been experiencing as a country that now it has really come to light and people are now understanding what it truly means. So the actual definition of a microaggression is they're seemingly small slights that could be intentional or not, but it essentially communicates bias towards another person or group. Typically, a marginalized groups, this could be racial, ethnic, this could be sexual identification, this could be gender identity, this could be immigration bias as well. So it actually um, really stretches through multiple, multiple classes and subclasses of people that identify as such. The important thing is that it really stems from systemic 
racism that's really been embedded in societal norms that just through these centuries and decades have just historically propagated white racism and it basically normalizes whiteness in society so basically anything outside those those standards are considered foreign or abnormal this extends to all those groups marginalized groups that i discussed before as stereotypes and it's all tied in with implicit bias which is like unknown or unconscious because sometimes it can they can occur without a person having a particular intention to make someone feel bad. And it also ties in with dehumanization too, like how you perceive other groups, um, what their stereotypes are. Well, and I was wondering, I think when you and I talked about it as a, um, I've always, the term I've used to describe myself as Eurasian or um, sometimes Heinz 57 because I'm French, Dutch, Italian, Vietnamese, and Texan. And for my whole life, I've always asked, had people ask me, what are you? And I never really took offense at that, but it was always kind of weird. And I then I'd have to explain, you know, why do I look the way I look? It was actually kind of a relief. I traveled with my dad, who's from Singapore to the Far East, and it was suddenly very interesting to meet cousins that look like me. I, I don't know if that's a microaggression, but what, what's that feel like to the receiver? Technically, yes, that is technically a microaggression. Um, and and so so like you, uh, as, as an Asian American, very similar question. What are you? Where are you from? I get where is your accent a lot of times. But what the microaggressions do to the receiver is that the receiver is offended, you know, offended or disturbed. And that results in a range of negative emotions, ranging from just self-doubt in their worth and abilities it causes them to internalize the stereotype. There's also a question of, was that truly an insult or was it not? Because oftentimes they can be cloaked as compliments that are backhanded um, or honest questions. I'm, uh, to be honest, most of the times when people ask, where am I from or where's my accent? They're actually trying to say it like a compliment or they're truly wondering. I've also gotten, uh, you know, you're in compliment from somebody and they just don't realize how negative that terminology and, and that comment really is because it really propagates the sense of otherness, the foreignness. Oh, now you fit in with, with this identity of being an American. When we, as we all know, America is just a mix and hodgepodge of people. We're all American. I'm wondering if some of it is, I think, curiosity. I know like my dad, because he often is seeking out other people that have Asian background because he wants to speak to somebody because he can speak Cantonese and Malay. So for him, he he's looking for someone like him. And But I think you're talking a little bit about somehow your other. And I know sometimes with my patients, I'm interested in what their background is because I'm interested culturally. Is there a difference between sort of that interest and what becomes more than that? So for sure. And I think it, it has to do with intonation of when people are saying these things. And like I said, sometimes this can come across as a microaggression and the purpose in that is actually stating it doesn't actually mean for it to be. They're genuinely interested. They're really asking. Um, but I think it's just the intonation that we may use or the choice of wording that we may use. Like we can ask, what is your background versus like, what are you or where are you from? Or what I get a lot of times I'll say I'm from, I was born in Arkansas, for example. And they say, oh, no, no, no. Where are you really from? And right. So basically <laughs> asking if I'm from China or Taiwan or whatnot. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I think in some cases, it definitely is seeking out other people. I've definitely had other Asian people say, what are you? And it's because they can't tell if I am Hawaiian or Korean or whatnot, because I look, I'm actually a bit of a mix myself. I'm half Vietnamese and half Taiwanese. So people can't always necessarily place where I come from as well. Right. And when we were talking prior to this recording, you had talked about some other terms that I had not heard before, micro-assaults, micro-insults, and micro-invalidations. Can you describe what those are and maybe some examples of what that might look like? Yeah, for sure. So um, micro-assaults are the most explicit, most obvious ones. They're really a derogation. They can be verbal or nonverbal, but it's meant to hurt the victim. So either using derogatory terms, racial epithets, um, or overt displays, like, for example, a swastika, um, or even preferential treatment. So like deliberately serving someone who may look um, more traditionally gender class as a male or female versus um, a person that's a little more gender fluid in appearance. That one is usually expressed in a limited or private situation, which means not a lot of bystanders. So the person is overtly doing it to this person, um, to the victim, but it allows the perpetrator to be a little more anonymous because there's not a lot of people that have witnessed it. Micro-insult is really one of the hardest ones, to be honest, and it's a communication that conveys rudeness or insensitivity, and it demeans a person's heritage or identity. So, and some of these can be a little bit benign. So, um, one example would be if an employer said, I believe the most qualified person should get the job regardless of race, and it's the base portion there being asked, how did you get your job? And it could even be nonverbal as well. So for example, if you have a classroom that maybe has indigenous students in it and the teacher does not acknowledge them would be another example. And it's a snub, essentially. It's a subtle snub. Sometimes a perpetrator doesn't even mean to say it that way. Um, And it's kind of a hidden insulting message. Micro-invalidation. Those are communications that either exclude or negate or nullify a person's experience. So, for example, um, the example I gave you earlier, uh, your English is perfect. Where are you really from? Um, I don't see color or I have lots of black friends or I have lots of gay friends. Um, And basically it negates that their heritage is part of the American storyline and it conveys that they're still seen as foreigners or it negates their sexual identity essentially or gender identity. Yeah, I think the one that would probably be, you know, difficult for a lot of people is this invalidation. And I know myself, I'm guilty of having done that. And I was horrified that I had offended somebody when I said, you know, I don't see color. I treat everybody the same. And I got called out on it and I just was horrified, you know, and I didn't know gosh, I I didn't mean that. What did I say? How should I say it differently? And so I think there, I think sometimes people worry about, you know, should I say black? Should I say African-American? Should I say it at all? So can you speak to that? For sure. Yeah. So I I agree. And I think we are honestly all guilty of these type of microaggressions because we don't, mean it as an insult. We don't mean it as an invalidation. We're not trying to do that, but we say these words and we don't quite understand the perception of it from another person's side. And I think that's the key really for that. I think the biggest thing is 
doing the work and educating ourselves and understanding that it's just, it's not the responsibility of the victim to educate people. Um, I, I feel like I get a lot of questions about that. Like, should the Black person that is offended by the word aggressive uh, explain this to the white colleague that told them to be more quiet, for example? And it's not their responsibility to educate us on what to say. Um, some people are willing. For example, I am very willing to explain why I feel something is offensive. But other people may not be in the right headspace or they, they may not be in the right place to do it in a productive manner. And I think that's really a key part in moving forward and as a society. Part of that is self-reflection of ourselves, of explicit biases that we have, which is the easy part. What do we overtly feel biased towards that we know we do um, versus the implicit biases? So these are the like unconscious biases that we make. Like, for example, when you see a black male enter a elevator and everyone moves to the left or right and like grabs a wallet or purse, that would be it. Because the funny thing is, if you ask people right after they do something like that, they'll deny that they did it because it's part of their implicit bias. So... One of the things you talked um, about is self-education. And I mean, I know there's implicit bias testing that you can, not testing, but you can do online just to kind of raise the awareness like, yeah, I did think that or I do do that. Anything else? Right. I'm a big advocate for implicit bias testing because what you may find will actually surprise you. Um, it surprised me. There were things that I didn't realize I was, I was biased against. Um, and, and that's the point of those. I really like, um, there's a podcast from Life Kit, which is a, a spinoff of N NPR, I believe, but the title is Microaggressions Are a Big Deal. And I think they do a great job in introducing um, the topic as well um, to people and kind of the basic um, kind of takeaway points of if a microaggression were to happen, why is it a big deal? Um, why are we talking about it now? Why is it in like all the newspapers? Why is it in mainstream media? A lot of large educational institutions also have like diversity and inclusion programs that are instilling microaggression training in them as well. Just because a lot of typical DEI work was a lot of uh, black versus white racial disparity and equity talk. Um, but I think adding in the microaggressions also brings in other ethnic cultures as well as other marginalized groups such as like LGBTQ uh, people. We can also talk about like sexual misogyny, um, gender bias towards females as well, especially in a field like medicine. Biases against like even immigration bias or immigration status as well. There's also lots of numerous peer-reviewed papers. The big one would be uh, Daryl Sue. He's a pioneering researcher, um, really brought um, the term microaggressions to mainstream. Um, there's also a fantastic photography project that was out of Fordham University Lincoln Center. It was actually featured on BuzzFeed recently, but that I thought was amazing because what this photographer did was actually take pictures of different people on campus, so students and alumni, and um, actually had them write on a little placard what kind of microaggressions had been made towards them. And you see that it affects people of all ages, all gender identities, and um, affects even Caucasian people. Like there was a, a girl that was on that said um, one of her biggest things was that, why is your daughter so white? So it affects people of all walks of life. 
There's also some really great journal reviews, um, articles in some of the medical journals. For example, PMNR um, did an ethical legal topic, microaggressions in clinical training and practice. Um, this is by Marianne Overland, um, as well as the group that worked with her. And this was published in issue 11 of 2019. And it's a collection of essays with microaggressions in clinical practice and what can be done in the clinical workspace. So like provider versus patient, uh, trainees, and uh, JAMA Surgery also had an article that was very similar that was published in September 2019 that talks about recognizing and reacting to microaggressions in medicine and surgery. And finally, the biggest thing that you can do is if you witness a microaggression, especially if you're part of a privileged group, is to do something about it. And we can talk a little more about how to do something about it when we talk about the QI project. Sure. Um, I think those are all really important points. And you mentioned a lot of great resources, and I'll make sure to include links in the show notes for all of those. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, I think I know the answer to this is, what's that look like in medicine? I I had a conversation with um, a young family member, and she was kind of suggesting that maybe the glass ceiling had been broken. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I can tell you from my own experience, I, I'm still banging on the glass ceiling and I'm pretty vocal, but it, it's, it's hard. And I, the other thing I was wondering about, these are kind of two separate. So wherever you want to go is I almost wonder sometimes now if people feel a little bit paralyzed, like I am so afraid to say anything that might be offensive, that there's almost like this backlash against being quote PC. For sure. So I think for the first question, um, what it looks like in medicine is that, oh, it can take place across so many different hierarchies, which makes it really difficult, right? It can come from attending to the level of the med student or to the resident or to the fellow. And it can also come from the provider to the patient as well or vice versa. So I think the biggest thing a lot of times what we see is um, being a woman in medicine, first off, you're automatically not a doctor in some patient's eyes. Um, you're either a nurse or a PA. So, you know, having patients say, oh, can I see the doctor now when you've already been there and you were just talking about the plan and everything. Um, the real and doctor. on top of that, being a woman <laughs> of color. Exactly. Who? Where's the real doctor, right? On top of that, being a woman of color or being a person of color in, in medicine, um, I feel like a lot of times we, we do deal with a lot of um, imposter syndrome that we all suffer from. And a lot of it is because we've been told things like, um, for example, from being an Asian American, speaking up more, uh, being more confident. Also for people that are Black, maybe um, smiling more or, you know, trying to not look so angry or saying things like, um, can you speak a little more softly and not so loudly? Those are all sorts of microaggressions that are pretty prevalent in the medical field across many levels. Um, also, like it, for example, I've, I've even had kind of the reverse happen um, for my colleagues that are females that are gay females that are, look more manly, they don't deal with as much of how much, how can I speak to the real doctor or, or are you a nurse? So it actually kind of goes both ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the important thing is, A, making sure your patient's okay, addressing the comment, naming the behavior as inappropriate, 
right? Making sure you're keeping it professional and then refocusing that conversation in some way, especially if it's like between the provider and the patient. Now, if it's between people of an interprofessional team and there's a lot of hierarchy um, in the actual medical position, I guess you could say, I think the important thing with that is A, keeping it professional and not being reactive because you do have to work in an interdisciplinary team. I think thinking calmly about your next steps, whether you're in a, a person that is a victim or if you're a witness, is also important. If you are a victim, the another thing is not internalizing um, the microaggression and countering it. And and there's actually Dr. Tara Swart, who's a neuroscientist from MIT. She has a really great little YouTube video that talks about microaggressions. And she says, even, and I love this tip, immediately countering, even if you're not doing it vocally. For example, if you are a woman and someone says that this position would not be great for you because you're a woman, thinking immediately to yourself and kind of affirming to yourself, I don't agree with that. I think I can get that job. Or I don't agree with that because of this. Even if you're not outrightly saying it to that person does wonders for your mental health. Because the issue with the microaggressions is that there's a summative effect when you're being told is really negative. And you use a lot of cognitive and emotional energy dealing with that and trying to overcome it. So I like her practice of just immediately affirming to yourself that that is not right and addressing it, even if it's just to yourself. I'm thinking in my head that song, I am woman, hear me roar. <laughs> you know, I have, there have been times when I've dug my fingernails. <laughs> I love it. I've dug my fingernails into my palms because when I feel offended, I mean, I want to cry and that feels like that would be super not helpful. But I mean, I've even done things like I'm going to wear my red dress and my power pumps to feel powerful because, you know, I feel like I need to do that sometimes, which I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just been something that's helped me. Oh, I think it's a wonderful thing. The power of self-affirmation can carry you to overcome whatever type of issues you may have for the day, or even kind of squashing that little voice of self-doubt that you have in the back of your head, which is super important. Um, and like I said, with these microaggressions, I mean, over time, you waste all this cognitive emotional energy. It over time also develops into increased vigilant and you become more risk averse, which in the work performance life is may not be super great, right? And so, like I said, you also worry about your perception. Are you being too sensitive? Are you then becoming too difficult to work with when you bring these things up, when you say these things? And over time, all these effects really conglomerate into what we call battle fatigue, that you know, is it even worth it to even say anything when someone makes, say something about my accent or when someone asks me that, oh, like I want to see the white doctor or I want to see the male doctor or something like that. Yeah, I had certainly experienced that when I was, I think, first starting out. I, I remember this patient well, and she said, I um, I just won't see a female doctor. And I'm like, well, this is what you got because I'm on call tonight. I was the only woman in the group. <laughs> And eventually over time, I mean, we became good friends and I would remind her of, hey, Naomi, remember that time? And she laughed and, you know, but um, I was just like, well, sorry, <laughs> this is this is where we're at. Right. So we'll talk a little bit about your QI project and particularly, and this is something I think all of us can do is that bystander role, being an ally. So why don't you talk about your QI project? 
Absolutely. So with the QI project, what I did was I made a presentation that was just really um, an educational intervention, essentially, for the residents as well as the other pediatric providers um, at Helen DeVos. And we did a pre-survey to kind of assess their knowledge and their comfort levels. Um, and the questions were regarding identifying microaggressions, certain types of microaggressions, and then how do you address incidents or if you're in a certain role, what should you do? The results weren't actually surprising. In the pre-survey, it showed significant unease and non-confidence um, in identifying microaggressions or even getting involved. For example, with just identification, only 17% of the providers felt like they could actually identify a microaggression. And I think, again, that goes into the education level and experiences that one has experienced in life or, or has heard of from colleagues. And what we did was after the educational intervention, we provided a post-survey and just measured their confident level change. And so... Fantastically, I mean, after we did the lecture, we went from 17% all the way to 63% of providers being very, very confident in being able to identify something offensive like that. And all it took was, I mean, this educational intervention was only about 30 minutes long, so not a very long lecture at all. And similarly, how I talked here, really defining what it is, providing examples, talking about the different types, because they can look and feel very different to everyone, um, really allowed people to have the ability to say, oh, I can recognize that now. And oh, that's not right. Or I can see how somebody could be offended. It was just that one 30-minute lecture that made that change? Exactly. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seems like there could be a curriculum about that that people could use. So you, should, uh, you should record a YouTube on what that lecture was and put it out there. Yeah, that's what I like. I'd really like to build my work on this just because, I mean, to honestly, across the board with all the questions, whether they were receivers, whether they were victims, whether they had the confidence to even step in if they were witnessing, which was the biggest thing for me. Because we have seen time and time again, especially if you're part of a privileged group, if you stand up as a witness and you stand up as an ally, you not only open up this actual conversation as a bystander, but you also validate the victim, which for them, I've talked already about just like the loss of energy, the really negative effect to one's psyche, one's self-worth that comes from that. You validate them and you take all of that away. So all those hours that you that person may spend fuming that night or the next day or talking to their family members, you are stepping up and really helping them out of that, that rut that they don't even have to be in. I heard an example of something like this where a woman was doing a presentation and was a, a Black woman, and all of the people she was doing to, a presentation to were on the other side of the table and were white men. And there was another woman with her, a white woman. And what the white woman did was she moved seats so that she was now in the kind of hot seat. And the black woman then was amongst the interviewers or the people she was presenting to. And it totally changed the tone. And that was just something sort of simple because the woman was aware of what was going on. I love that idea. And I know like during our educational intervention, I definitely opened up the floor for people to talk about their own experiences. And even for 
say for white men, I mean, white men have white male colleagues of mine have stepped up and definitely said, oh, I definitely see this. I've definitely had to repeat orders to somebody because they wouldn't take it from my female colleague. And all of a sudden my orders were being done. Same exact orders, same exact request. Um, So, I mean, just the power that a bystander has is immense at really helping us as a society get better. And instead of all of us kind of pushing this under the rug, being uncomfortable with this conversation, if we toughen up and bring ourselves to a point where we can have these productive conversations about it and be more aware of our fragility, we can be better society. I heard a great presentation. It was on uh, Brene Brown's podcast who I adore. And um, it was the man that does uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And he talked about how his friend said, like, it's not your job to educate white people about this. And he said, you know what, I'm in a position of privilege because I'm a celebrity. He's a he was a football player. And so he said, I feel like this is something I can do. And some of the questions that he got asked were like outrageous. But um, I think that that was really kind of an eye-opening thing to hear that. And then the other podcast that Brene Brown did was on dehumanization and this idea that if I make you feel like you are other and you're not like me, then I can treat you differently because you're not you know, a human like I am, you're something less than, and then I can get away with it. But the minute that I see your humanity, it's uncomfortable because that's, that's against all basic human values. Agreed. Agreed. And I think we all need to bring ourselves to this level of uncomfortability in discussing this because it's, this isn't just isolated to race. This is isolated, like I said, across multiple classifications of people. And we all innately have our own biases. And the important thing is becoming honest about it. And I love that you brought up dehumanization just because Part of that comes with our implicit bias and this this hierarchy that we give ourselves that we unknowingly establish rules for other people, other types of people without realizing it. Well, I think you've offered some super concrete ideas. Um, I think, you know, just the list of resources that you've given and maybe just planting the seed about thinking that perhaps is that a microaggression, an insult, an invalidation, because the more I think about it, I know that I've been guilty of that too. And, you know, I think we can all just, you know, be better. You know, I love the, you know, the quote, if you know better, you can do better. So I think that's the case. And and you just have to first know that you can use some improvement, Absolutely. And I hope what people get out of this is that there's there's always a way to address this. And there's a great framework. Actually, I forgot to talk about it earlier. But basically, if anybody is in this situation, the best way to address it is just acknowledging the microaggression, validating the negative feelings, whether you are a witness, a perpetrator, um, a victim, confronting that language itself and identifying it is the important thing because without that identification, no one really understands and other people may not understand and a perpetrator may not understand. Being able to make yourself available, which demonstrates that there's there's a seriousness to this, that this isn't going to be just brushed under the rug. And then the biggest thing is also for the perpetrator, like 
if you are a person intervening to meet independently with them to not make this a big deal in front of a large group because all that is going to do is make somebody very defensive versus learning from their experience and being better. That I think really feeds into what Brene Brown talks a lot about is this idea of vulnerability. I need to be vulnerable enough to admit my own weaknesses or areas where I need help, but then not shaming because it's really easy when you don't agree with somebody to want to shame them, but that it may actually make the situation worse. And rather than being more likely to change, they might be more likely to dig their heels in. And I think we see this a lot with our sort of polarization that we have politically, um, that we are, you know, name calling on both sides, and that that is not helpful to making things change. Right. You are quite the advocate, and I'm glad that you are, you know, going to bring this to your work, no matter what specialty that you were going to go into, that you would carry this with you. And I certainly hope that you find a place within the American Academy of Pediatrics to continue this work, because there's just so much room for improvement. I always ask my guests, if you could go back to when you were a medical student or someone in training and could give yourself some advice, you know, back then, what would you say based on what you know now? Oh, boy. Um, I think allowing myself a lot of grace that you're not going to be perfect. And this is why you're on this journey. Um, you are aren't expected to be perfect, you're going to make mistakes, and that's how you learn. And I think over time, I figured out that it's okay to make those mistakes, that it's going to be okay, you're going to be better. But I think training and trying to get to this, this level, you are so hard on yourself and imposter syndrome is so real. <laughs> and you never feel like you have a seat at the table, but having confidence in yourself. Um, because sometimes it's just yourself holding you back and yourself not being confident enough and that you do have a seat at this table and you have earned it. I love that. I think that that's really important, that sense of belonging, because we all want that. We, as physicians, we want to belong to the club. And I mean, I can tell you as someone who's been in practice for, you know, over 30 years, I too still struggle with imposter syndrome. Like, how can I possibly speak up on this? You know, who am I to be doing a podcast? You know, that kind of thing. So it, it's a lifelong struggle. Don't feel bad. <laughs> but I love that about giving ourselves grace. So I, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Nina. I appreciate your information. It, it's certainly eye-opening for me and kind of piques my curiosity about some of these other um, resources that you've listed. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me a platform to talk about something so near and dear to my heart and um, making podcasts. And you know very well, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So please, you belong at that table just like everyone else is on, in terms of medical podcasting. So I love it. Well, and that matters a lot to me hearing from someone that is early in their career and training, because I'm hoping that this is helpful to folks, you know, where you are in your journey, because I wish I'd had some of this stuff, you know, 30 years ago. So thank you so much for, for validating me. I appreciate that. Well, listen, um, I will for sure share all this information in the show notes. So for you listeners out there, Nina, I hope you continue the great work that you're doing. And it sounds like you are, you know, just making an impact every place you go. So 
good luck to you in your next career move. And thanks again. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Quay for sharing information about this important topic. And I think this gives us an opportunity to really have a much better awareness of the things that we say and do and how they affect others, and then changing our behavior. I'm going to distill down some of the finer points so that you can break this down bit by bit. So number one, microaggressions, what are they? Nina describes microaggressions as small signals towards marginalized populations that may demean, insult, or hurt the receiver. They are common, often unrecognized, and often unintended, but perpetuate better-than-status. Number two, systemic racism is built on micro- and macroaggressions and normalizes white, often male, superiority. Number three, microassaults. These are explicit and are intended to hurt. They often occur without bystanders and might include things such as displaying swastikas or using racial epithets. Number four, micro-insults. These are comments, rudeness that may demean or snub another and may be unintended. Number five, micro-invalidation. These are comments that nullify or negate someone. For example, saying, I don't see color. I learned this one the hard way. Number six. So what can we each do? Well, we can start with educating ourselves. Check out the show notes. Some references are included there for you. And these can include implicit bias testing that you can do online, reading articles, listening to TED Talks and podcasts. Number seven. Be an ally if you are a witness or a bystander to microaggressions and use your power, especially if you are at the top of the hierarchy. Number eight, how? Acknowledge that the microaggression occurred, validate the negative feeling it caused, and counter. You can approach the person who used the microaggression, perhaps in private, to avoid shaming. Shaming really doesn't change behavior, and in fact, it might you know, make it worse. So that's an important point. Number nine, if you are the receiver or victim, try not to personalize the remarks, but counter with non-vocal affirmations, or if safe, use vocal affirmations. One of the non-vocal affirmations might be saying to yourself, I do deserve this job. And I don't mean to minimize this in any way. So again, listening to Nina, she has a really good way of describing what this looks like. Number 10, be aware of dehumanization when you see it or hear it. Dehumanization allows us to see others as less than, and then it allows the hurt to happen. Brene Brown has a really great podcast, and I'll put the episode links in the show notes about dehumanization. It's really critical that we understand that. Number 11, the imposter syndrome is real. Number 12, microaggressions are a big deal. Number 13, we all belong at the table. And number 14, do better, be better. Thank you so much for listening today. I know this is sometimes a difficult topic, but I think it does create some opportunity for deep self-reflection. And I know I need this too. Thank you so much for everything that you do for children. 
And I hope that summer brings us some relief from the pandemic. Many of us are already vaccinated, and that just feels like a breath of fresh air. And hopefully we will be able to gear up and start vaccinating kids. Please take care of yourselves and others. And I look forward to having you join me next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.